Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And welcome back to the Final Inspection Show brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway Union Grill along with David Hobbs Honda, 6100 North Green Bay Avenue for the best in not only new cars but a wide selection of Honda certified used cars and a wide variety of uh, used cars too. And joining me... In suite number five at picturesque Road America, it is David Hobbs. Thanks for joining the show, sir. Thanks for having me on again, Steve. Uh, we've been selling a lot of books this weekend. We have. Um, Hobbo, which I brought out March of uh, 2018, is going very well. And uh, obviously an IndyCar crowd here today, Friday. Um yeah, we've had a very nice run today, and uh, hopefully over the weekend too. You and I were chatting about it, and you think you know people have bought their you know have bought the books, and we're probably going to be seeing the same people. But we did a, a, a nice little thing last night at Seepkins uh, for uh, raising kids for cancer, raising kids for cancer, uh, and and with good good crowd and people were were coming in. We're happy to see us. We even had some a uh, couple of gentlemen from Texas and people from Pittsburgh and. I mean, it was a really nice, nice crowd, and uh, yeah, they love the book, and it, it's a, it's kind of a cool book. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I must say that two or three people have popped on onto the shop. I'm selling it out of the gift shop here at the track, and uh, a couple of people have come and said, hey, I've already got it. Lovely, great read, great read, and I keep saying, well, say that louder to this gentleman right here who's thinking <laughs> about buying one. <laughs> so I, people that have read it seem to like it a lot. Um, because it covers a lot of ground. It covers from my first race in 1959 right to the end of my TV career last year. So, I mean, that's a lot of ground to cover. That's 60 years of, yeah. race, of racing and TV. Um, a, a, a lot of people think your first race here, and I did for a while, uh, was the the first race here was a Formula 5000 race with 30s in 1969. But actually, you raced here earlier in, what, 64? I came here in 1964 with a Lotus Cortina uh, from the Lotus factory. It was a factory car, a Lotus Cortina being a sedan. Mm-hmm. And we were sent out to do the 500. I'm not sure if it's the Pabst 500 or what 500 it was, but it was... It there was, would have been like an under two liter then? It was under two, yeah, yeah, exactly. 1999, that car. So, uh, But unfortunately, the lady in uh, Lotus in England, um, I guess she looked at a map of America... And uh, she put us in a holiday inn in Madison. <laughs> well, in those days, there was no I-43. Right. And t- we kept trying different routes cross-country from here to Madison. Um, the other thing that none of us limes were used to, of course, was all this County A stuff. County A, County B. Right. County BB. I'm, I'm a city person. I'm still not even used to it. And the fact is, of course, between here and Madison, there are about three counties. Mm-hmm. And they've all got a County A. So the locals would say, well, you go down here to get to County A, then you go down there, to go north on County A until you get to County CC and go east. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, unfortunately, Gus, as soon as you're out of that county, it's not 
County A anymore. Right. It's something else. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun going back to forth the track. I honestly can't remember how we did in the race. Um, who was your co-driver? I think I was driving with a guy called Chris Craft, who was another okay. English driver of my yeah. era. And Chris did a lot of saloon car driving in England, sedan car driving, that is. And um, I, I just, honestly, I can't remember how we did, and I can't remember who even won the race. Uh, it was probably probably a chaparral. I mean, we were yeah. probably being lapped about every five laps. <laughs> with, uh, we have to ask Tom Schultz for that, uh, the resident historian of Road America, good guy. Um, and then, yeah, the Formula 5000, that's always an interesting story, too, in 1969, because you were running Formula 5000 in England, and then you came over towards the end of the summer to race Formula 5000. And you and, uh, I think, with John Cannon were racing right to the end uh, for the championship. Well, it was... Uh, or was it Tony Adamowitz? Tony Adamowitz. What happened was that um, John Surtees, who had decided to make his own car, so he made the first car was a Surtees TS5, which was designed by a chap called Lan Terry, who was an English car designer at the time. And he had designed the Gurney Eagle, which, um, in fact, if you go and look at the eagle and display it in, in the museum, in the Collier Museum in Naples, Florida, the front suspension on the eagle and the front suspension on the Surtees were absolutely identical. But we, I did a couple of races in England, um, and I finally, we had our first win in a place called Mondello Park in Ireland, and uh, that was in June. And then I had been going, he'd been trying to set up a deal with James Garner, who had got all hot to trot on racing. James had a big sponsor out of Riverside, California, not far from where your last guest came from, mm -hmm. um, who was a big, he made motorhomes. Not, not so much motorhomes as mobile homes. And um, anyway, it fell through, like pretty well everything that poor old John Surtey did. Um, so in the end, he decided to bite the bullet and sent me out on my own with a chap called Dennis Davis, who was a mechanic for a long time with McLaren and uh, other people done a lot of Formula 1 work and he and I came out and we were like this dynamic duo driving all around North America and we came here and we stayed at Sharp Summer Resort which is really where those condos on the lake are now Right. and um, God I mean I remember the bugs being just grotesque <laughs> had the car up on stands in the driveway at the motel working on it trying to change in the engine or something um, and anyway it was three 100 mile heats and I was pretty close to the front in qualifying. Um, and going down into the kink on lap one, heat one, I was alongside the local hero, Jerry Grant, who, of course, I knew nothing about Jerry Grant. Anyway, I went to the kink, and, uh, and I suddenly realized there was nobody behind me. And there'd been a massive shunt down there. Um, cars going off in all directions. Now, I'm sounding a bit like the granny now. says, I've never had an accident, but I've seen lots in my mirror. And uh, <laughs> so I'm wondering if there was something that involved. Anyway, just as I pulled up to start finish line, there was a red flag, so the whole thing was called off. And it went on to seven. So I did really one lap of the 300 miles, uh, which was my, my really first venture here. And then, of course, I hadn't been here since 64. And after 1969, I basically ended up racing at Road America at least once, if not twice a year, for until 86. With uh, mostly with IMSA. With Formula 5000, with IMSA, Trans Am, Can Am. Um, you know, I had to go at everything here. And, uh, and as I say, I usually ended up having at least, well, every year I had at least one race here. 
And some years I'd come here two or maybe three times. And in the end, I had some good success. I won the 500 twice. The one uh, time in 79, you weren't even ex- expecting to win it with BMW. We weren't expecting to finish with mm-hmm. the big key, you know, because that car, the, that little BMW 320Ti turbo was um, gave a lot of horsepower for the day. You know, two liters, it was giving 700 horsepower. Um, massive throttle lag with the, with the turbocharger. And it was not the most reliable vehicle I've ever driven. So Roger Bailey was the team manager, and me and Tyler Alexander, because the car was run by McLaren North America out of Detroit. We were all saying, well, is it even worth going? You know, gosh, we can't even do a 100-mile race without the thing breaking. Anyway, I had Derek Bell as my co-driver, and Derek Bell, of course, is, was an incredibly lucky race driver. I mean, he won the Le Mans five times. And he comes along, and uh, we won it. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, how, how did one uh, fight turbo leg back in those days? Was it a timing deal? A timing deal. Yeah, you go into the corner and you you just had to get it right because obviously t- turbo lag wasn't always exactly the same. Right. Depending on the rev and what gear you're in, sure, it made a bit of a difference to how long the lag lasted. So you had to get used to it um, and work it out when it was going to when it was going to come on boost. And you obviously wanted it to come on boost right about at the apex. You didn't want it to come on boost just before the apex. Um, it, so, I mean, I'd driven at Indy by then, and, of course, there it was easy. You just brake with your left foot and kept the throttle open a bit. Right. So, so it kept the, kept the turbo spinning, uh, but not much boost. And then, of course, you just lift off the brake and off it go again. But um, road racing was a bit difficult. And, of course, it's only a little engine. It's only two litres, one great big turbo, uh, and four cylinders. So when the 935 came along with a six-cylinder engine and two turbos, their lag was significantly less. Plus, of course, they had a lot more horsepower when the thing wasn't in a lag mode because it was like a three-and-a-half-liter engine, so it had much more grunt anyway. And then, uh, of course, the 962s in the 80s, of course, with John Fitzpatrick and that. that was uh, how, how big was IMSA back then? If the fans who may not be, or listeners are, are not uh, old enough to remember those days. Well, IMSA was very big, um, and I'm glad to see it getting really big again. Um, it seems to have made a massive resurgence in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, the race coming up here in August is going to be, I think it'll be a really, really good race. Now, they are screwing around with their classes again, which sanctioning bodies are right. tend to do. I'm not sure that that's going to be the best thing in the world for IMSA. Um, it's so hard to tell because you get these guys making the rules and regulations and they think they're doing it for the best of the sport and sometimes they don't. And, of course, the prime example in my mind was Formula 5000, which I ran for a long time, from 1969 until 1974. And, I mean, that was one of the best classes that we had here, road racing. And all the promoters and the SCCA all said, no, nope, nobody wants to watch single-seaters on racetracks. They want to watch cars with bodywork, Can-Am, mm-hmm. Trans-Am. So they took the Can-Am cars and the, 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 Trans- the Formula 5000 cars and turned them into Can-Am cars, which was when the first big Can-Am had gone away. Right. Uh, but, of course, it never made it. And uh, right after that, Champ car racing came along, which, of course, wanted to use sack and mm-hmm. then it turned into Champ car, which was the Indy car that we know today, that uh, run under Champ car rules. And suddenly, I mean, everywhere had these massive crowds, places like Mid-Ohio, Road Atlanta, uh, Road America, had the biggest, some of the biggest crowds they've ever had. 
And what were they watching? They were watching single-seater racing cars on road race tracks. Exactly. You know, uh, which is where the guys have got it all wrong. And I, I feel that the uh, IndyCar of today probably should really be a Formula 5000 car that's evolved. And for those who are not familiar with it, a Formula 5000 car is basically almost like a Formula 1 car, but with a stock block motor, a 5-liter, yeah. naturally aspirated. And, uh, I mean, for the price, yeah. I mean, if you think of it, Surdy sent you over here with one mechanic. And how much support did you get? With, I mean, if you needed an engine, was that something he would set up, or how, how did that work out? Well, we had the engines were done by Al Bart out in California. Okay. Um, and so we used to just we we only had about two or three engines I think in the in the chain in, in it was the loop. you and your mechanic yeah two two and, people and we were based just outside Toronto in Canada so we went everywhere from Toronto so because every time you cross the border Mossport wasn't too bad yeah but was, oh my God were you heading to Edmonton then too. Went to Edmonton, and yeah. um, but I mean, most of the races were in the U.S. Laguna Seca—that's quite a so quite a haul. It's a haul from from Toronto. And of course, any time any engines came back into Canada from from California, mm-hmm. you had to go through customs, and you had to have paperwork, reams of paperwork, to get the damn thing in and out. And are you sure you're not going to sell it? Are you going to sell this? No, <laughs> this is our engine. We're going to use it. So. Um, it was a bit inconvenient, but we were at a little shell garage there that John Surtees had met when he first started doing Can-Am. Well, actually started doing the USRRC, which was before Can-Am, which is 1965. And he had met this guy called Ronnie Mutton, who owned a shell station in Bowmanville, Ontario, <laughs> which is a little rinky-dink town then. Now, of course, it's huge. Right. It's practically all part of uh, of uh, Toronto. But So we were based there for two years. And... Um, so we started here at, at, at Road America, and of course it was actually race seven of the series. And as I said, I did one lap. But then we got into our stride, and um, I was significantly quicker than most of the other people in the series. Um, and the uh, I ended up having three wins, and I lost the championship by one point to Tony Adamwitz, who won it by one point. And um, I think, I think he might have won here, but he only had one win in the year, and mm-hmm. nobody else in the series had more than one win. And I had three, and I only did half the series. Uh, and I lost the championship by one point. Then we came back the following year, 1970, and again we started halfway through the year, and I could only come third that year, having done half the races. Then the year after, I changed teams, drove for Carl Hogan out of St. Louis, and uh, in a McLaren. M10A, and we won five races and won the championship. Very good. And what was your last race here? My last, what I 89? call my last real race, was probably 86. 80, oh, with BMW, BMW prototype. prototype. I might have come back in 87 with my son Greg. We drove a 320 here. Okay. Owned by a guy called uh, uh, Leo, uh, gosh, out of Chicago. And a nice chap. Um, and he was a big fan of the Hobbs family, and he wanted Greg to do well. And uh, we uh, we raced his three. Uh, I think Greg and I raced his three twenty here. He might have driven it as well. Um, but my last real race was the BMW prototype in eighty six, and that car was dynamite. Now that was the same engine I raced in the BMW three twenty in nineteen seventy seven, 
But since then, BMW have done a tremendous amount of engine development. And in 1984, they won the World Championship in Formula One cars with the BMW engine in the Brabham. Nelson Piquet was the world champion, and they won the championship with the Brabham and the BMW engine. So when we took it on again in 1986, it had, it had improved enormously from 1977. And it gave a it qualifying trim. It gave a 1,000 horsepower. Amazing. Um, it was such a, such a small engine, too. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they had stroked it to make it a full two-liter instead of, like, 1950. Right. Which, unfortunately, caused a lot of vibration. So we had early season issues with vibration-breaking pipes, like like gas pipes, which caused the fire. Um but it was one of the, that was one of my most disappointing races ever here because we were on the front row and um, the hero of those days, the, the leader was Al Hulbert and Derek Bell in the um, Lone Brown, Brown. Beautiful Lone Brown 962. Yeah. And I remember coming up this main straight right outside this window here and I was right behind Derek driving the Lone Brown car and he was second and I was about to lap him which would have been very, very, very <laughs> good for me. And going down into turn five, it suddenly, the engine just stumbled and bumbled and just, it, and it choked itself. And it stopped down at turn five and I fiddled around with it because I couldn't do anything. And I managed to stagger back to the pits through the infield. Um, anyway, some wire had broken in the electronic control unit and had put it onto full rich. Ah. So in the morning, when it was cool, on the Monday morning, mm -hmm. it just fired right up because it was like pulling the choke out. Right. Um, it's like pulling the choke out and hanging your handbag on it. You know, it, it, <laughs> they don't work too good when they're no. that. And it just it just went over rich and stopped. So that was very disappointing. And then your last race, of course, was uh, WEC 1990. But you have never officially announced your retirement. Is that true? This is true. There is time left. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is it is you know being being uh, uh, at some of these book signings and that and and being spending some time with you that you I, you still get offers to drive many vintage cars and I, I think your explanation on why you don't makes a lot of sense and why don't you tell the listeners why don't you drive vintage cars? Well, I was extremely fortunate in my racing career that I raced for thirty years from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen eighty nine. And I was on the TV from 1976 to 19 or 2018. Uh, but in all my races, I never got hurt. And I'm racing, I raced through the, probably the most dangerous era ever of racing because cars and particularly tires developed at an astonishing rate and speeds absolutely rocketed. But of course, track safety didn't change for the first 10 years at all. And nor did car safety much. Nobody thought about the safety side of it. They just thought about making it light and fast. Mm -hmm. So it became very dangerous. And somehow, in all that time, I never so much as even broke a finger. Now, Brian Ribbon, one of my best friends, says, well, in that case, lad, you obviously weren't going fast enough. <laughs> well, I, I went fast enough to win a couple of championships and quite a few races. So... I just look at it now and I say, why would I stick my neck out right. and drive a car that's 30 years old that wasn't very safe 30 years ago, and it sure as hell is not any safer now than it was then. And I brake a lot easier, 
And if anything does break, <laughs> it takes forever to fix. I remember the first time I saw a Porsche 917 in person. And, of course, as a kid, you know, you're a big fan of the movie Le Mans with Steve McQueen and everything. And you see the 917s. And, in fact, you, you drove one. Uh, and, you know, you look at those cars. Okay. They, they look, you know, kind of big. And then when you see one in person, I was shocked how small it was and then i remember getting up close to one looking at him going where's the firewall there is no <laughs> firewall <laughs> there's no fire it's just fiberglass between you and that air-cooled engine a thin piece of fiberglass yes. no the, and of course the, the 917 was a was a space frame car if you take the bodywork mm. off you look at it and you think how the hell much that? there there's not much there and um and at one stage, Porsche even put pressure gauges on the um, on the tubes. They pumped them full of nitrogen. And if you saw the pressure gauges above your head, and if the temperature, if the pressure dropped, you knew the chassis had cracked somewhere. Um, they were a bit of a flexible flyer. I mean, they were fast, fast as hell. But I mean, to say they were safe would be uh, definitely a misnomer. Brian Redman has a great story about testing that car. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We won't go into that. No, now. we won't get into that now. That's case Porsche listening. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is amazing, and then you know it's it's ironic ironic that here we go, here we are in 2019, and we have the Red Group, who is so integral in emergency safety and everything, uh, sponsoring the event this weekend, the NTT IndyCar Series at Road America. And, you know, I took a very roundabout way somehow ending up in radio, but my first job in racing was track safety. And so I've always had kind of an interest in it. And I just remember looking at that 917 going, what is, where's the rest of the car? (laughs) Well, the cars, and of course the tracks were a joke. I mean, I first went to Spa, Belgium in 1966 in a GT40. Barbed wire isn't safe, and of course, um, <laughs> exactly. I'm in a I'm in a GT40, which has got bodywork around it. But as you went out on that long master straight, it was a downhill straight, about two miles long, and it had a bit of a kink through the village. So there's houses and sidewalks and lampposts right right at the side of the road, no, not a trace of guardrail. And of course, people sitting in their lawn chairs right at the apex of the corner, so they get nice and close to racing cars. And the clipping point as you exited the village was a utility pole made of concrete against which they lent a straw bale. <laughs> um, and, of course, it wasn't. I think it was last weekend was the anniversary of the Belgian Grand Prix, which would be 1962. So that is, what, nearly 50 years ago. And um, two drivers were killed that year. Chris Bristow went off the road and was decapitated by the barbed wire fence. And uh, Alan Bristow was driving a load, and he got hit in the head by a bird. Um, so, yeah. That tra- was a bad tra- week. Tracks were not safe. And Sterling Moss, actually, in practice for that same event, had gone off on the bank at Bourneville Turn and had broken both legs. Um, Willie Maurice was involved with Willie Maurice, yeah, Maurice. he could have been. Uh, Willie Maurice was, was, yeah. was involved in a lot of crashes yeah. over his career. But, uh, he, he was thrown from the car to safety, yeah. which was... Well, of course, when seatbelts came in in Europe, a lot of drivers were very skeptical about it because they thought, no, it's much safer to be thrown from the car. But, of course, from those days, maybe with the fire and the way the car sure. just crushed around you, maybe... Nowadays, I mean, the way these cars bounce off these walls at India and places like oh, that, it's right. just absolutely staggering that anybody survives it. The, uh, I sent you a photo 
and I forget the gentleman's name, who's who's become my hero, uh, the Irishman. In fact, you were talking about the uh, place in I, uh, the Formula 5000. He was the heavy set guy, who was no, who actually survived a couple of races. He got killed. He was the big guy that was driving that old Lotus, the heavy set guy. Oh, Chris Summers. Chris Summers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And here's a guy who had several accidents. Never. And you see him. St- he, he he actually the he's sitting in this Lotus and it's cut away and you can see clear as day. He no seatbelts. Oh, no. And, of course, Chris Summers was a heavy set guy. Big guy, yes. And, I mean, he bulged out over the top yes. of the bulge. So, nowadays, you can only just see the top of the driver's head because of all that safety stuff around you. You can see him mid-torso I mean, mid up. El- his elbows yeah. are out over the side of the yes. chassis, and he's grip grappling with the wheel. And, I mean, you're half out the car already. I so, you imagine when the thing turned over. I mean, right. your yeah. head's the, the rollover point. Exactly. Well, David, we certainly appreciate you coming out and uh, enjoying the fantastic weather finally in Wisconsin at the uh, the Rev Group uh, NTT IndyCar Series uh, up here in Road America. Make sure you come out. Uh, there's still time to come out for Saturday, today, and then also tomorrow is the big race. So come on out. It's a fun fun event, great uh, action, and who knows, you might even see David Hobbs well, walking Well, if you're very up. lucky, you might see me walking around. Yeah. Uh, look for the mob of people chasing oh, well, you. Yeah, just look for the mob, and then I'll be in the middle of that. Okay. Right, yeah. David, appreciate <laughs> nice. it. You've been listening to the Final Inspection Show, brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove and David Hobbs Honda. Where is David Hobbs Honda again? 6100 North Green Bay Avenue, Glendale. Very good, Where sir. every car has a sale deal. <laughs> Thank you, David. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.